Oh, can you hear my child screaming in the background? <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you have a three-year-old and it's 6 p.m. <laughs> Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology. I am Haley Bannock from the University of Toronto, and I am joined again by my friend and co-host Matt Fox from Boston University. Matt, how's it going? Going great, but it is... 90 degrees. I don't know what that is in your language, but it's 90 degrees here. And so it's just incredibly hot in the room that I'm recording this in. So if you hear me wiping my brow, you'll just know what that is. It's not because of the hard hitting questions that I ask you? No, that obviously I'm, I'm just incredibly nervous about what you're going to ask me about. And so I am sweating because of that. Well, it's good we have a very expert guest to join us today for this chapter discussion because I think they'll be able to do a lot of the heavy lifting and explaining to us. So today we are talking about chapter 22 in the new modern epidemiology textbook, the fourth edition. We have a fantastic guest, Dr. Margarita Moreno-Betancourt. She is an associate professor and co-director of the Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics Unit at the MCRI and the University of Melbourne. Her methodologic areas of interest are causal inference, missing data, and survival analysis, and she has contributed to epidemiologic research projects in a range of different areas, particularly in life course in social epi. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. So glad to be here. I feel like we need to share with the the guests, where are you located right now? So right now I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Very exciting and across the world from us. So just for our listeners, we wanted to have Margarita on the podcast so much that we had to deal with the scheduling challenges of scheduling a international cross-global, whatever we'll call it, podcast episode. And it is 6.30 p.m. on a Thursday for us, Matt and I. And for Margarita, she's calling us from the future. It's Friday morning where she is. That's a little bit of fun fact. So what is Melbourne known for? So I guess something big that really that happens here is, is is the Australian Open. Oh, right. At the beginning of each year in January. So that's a big event. There's the Formula One in March. Nearby, there's the Great Ocean Road. That's something very famous for tourists in, in who come to Australia. But aside from that, Melbourne is not a very touristy city per se. It's an amazing place to live, but there's no like really big landmarks or things like that that you would want to visit like up in Sydney where there's a, the Opera House and it's a more, much more flashier city. Because I, I have been there, but I couldn't tell you what it was known for. It definitely felt like a place where it would be really nice to live, but I didn't know what it was known for. But the Australian Open, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. And an embarrassing geography question, but are you on the ocean? <laughs> no. Th- so Melbourne actually is located on a bay. Like So th- there's a beach, but it's actually on a bay. It's not the ocean. Not, not directly the ocean but the ocean is not far oh okay but there is water where you can go swim ah yes yes very cool well i'm glad we got to know a little bit about melbourne because we've never had a guest from australia so this is very exciting for all of us so thanks for sharing but we have another couple of fun questions we want to ask you you know just to get to know you a little bit before we get started with the the episode so can you tell us about one place you've always wanted to travel to or a place you've traveled to that you love the most so i've traveled a bit and I must say, I mean, coming back to the Australia topic, I must say that that some of the best places I've been have been in Australia. Like there's some really magnificent places like the Great Barrier Reef, the tropical forest, but also what they call the outback, which is where the center of Australia, the like desert basically. And also what they call the bush. Basically in Australia, they call the bush anything that is not developed, like <laughs> the, not the city. And Australians just really love to go out and walk in the bush. 
And at the beginning, I, when I moved here eight years ago, I didn't really get it, but it sort of started to grow on me. And it's just there's something very dramatic about Australian weather and the atmosphere that's a bit otherworldly and really beautiful. So I've really, really fallen in love with that. And, and I didn't expect it because I used to live in Paris and I was very much in love with all the European cities and very beautiful developed. So yes, that's the beauty that I found on this side. <laughs> that is so cool. I would love to go. Matt, you said you've been to Melbourne. Have You've been to Australia before? I've been to Australia twice. Once in Melbourne, they had the AIDS conference there. And then once I was in uh, Sydney and then out in Western Australia, which was really nice. It seems so beautiful. I, one day, one day I'll get there. It's just that it's a really long flight. That's just, that's the problem. Yes, no, please come. All right. If you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? So it would be for early in your career from the PhD to start to network more and just to start talking to more senior researchers in and beyond my environment about the research careers and career development and, and basically seek mentors because it's something that I didn't do much and I was trying to figure out whether it was because I was in my more introvert days or because I was an international student. So, so I did my PhD in France and I'm from Colombia, so I moved around a bit. But I was an international student trying to grapple with all the new, new culture, language, etc. So maybe I was just a bit overwhelmed by all of that on top of the PhD or, or because I lacked awareness because it, this was something that was not much talked about in my environment over there. Or maybe I was just arrogant and thought I knew what I, what I was doing. But I think that whatever your circumstance, you really don't know what you don't know. So you, re you really should go and talk to senior people. They have a lot of information to share. Yeah, to me, that's such good advice. I very similarly, I would say very early on in my career was very much kept to myself and my group of doctoral students that I knew, largely because it felt intimidating to go and talk to these people who knew way more than I did. But every time I did, I just found people were so nice and generous with their time. And yeah, there is so much I didn't know. Yeah, the, the networking is so important. Going to SCR annually, that's really where I, I made most of my connections and did networking. And, and I think it's hard, especially for folks that are international, to make it to the conferences. So how do you think trainees can do that, seek out mentorship? Yes, I think conferences are a really, really good way to do that because then it suffices to have said hi to someone sort of in your field or someone that you find interesting, that you heard talk, and then there's nothing stopping you. You, you don't think as a junior person that you could do this, where you could email people <laughs> and ask them to meet or to have a chat or for advice and as, as you say usually people are very generous with their time actually senior people well and those who aren't well maybe that's not the ones that you should be talking to anyway so try it and, and you'll find some generous ears and people to talk to you and my experience has always been even the ones who don't get back to you it's usually not because they don't want to it's just they're just overwhelmed and so busy but then connect with them later in a meeting and they'll be just as generous with their time when they can yes that's absolutely right sometimes your people are also very overwhelmed and busy and, and can't but but when they find the time when you get them at the right time they might be able to share something that was actually the first way that I interacted with Matt. I sent him a, a cold email about a paper I was working on about misclassification. And I wrote, hello, Dr. Fox. And he must have said about five times each correspondence, please call me Matt. Please stop calling me Dr. Fox. And I, it's just habit for me, you know, where I trained, you always called faculty Dr. So-and-so. And afterwards, he told me when we became friends that he was like, I don't know how to get her to stop calling me Dr. Fox. 
talks. Like I've said it five times already. She really needs to stop. And now in retrospect, it's kind of funny to laugh about. All right. So thank you for letting us get to know you a little bit better and sharing that we should all come on a trip to Australia. You're, mm-hmm. you're going to invite us to, you know, come give a talk or something like that. Yes, absolutely. Great. So let's turn our attention to the chapter that we're talking about today, which is about time to event analyses. So this is a chapter that focuses on not just whether an event occurs, but these are analyses that should be used when the timing of the occurrence of the event is of central importance to understanding the relationships of interest. So I guess just to start off, to get everyone on the same page, how do you describe to people what a time to event outcome is? And why do we need these kinds of approaches? So a time to event outcome, I would define it as the time between a fixed time point that is well defined, and we might talk about that afterwards, when the individual is event free until the time until they experience the event. And we might be interested in studying the time to event and not just whether the event happened in various settings. For example, in the context of death, we are all going to die. (laughs) Sadly, it's the hard truth. So we may not be interested in, if we're talking about population, for example, mortality, we're not interested in if we're going to die, because we know it, but it's more about when. So what is our life expectancy? And so we're interested in whether things that happen throughout life delay mortality, or on the other hand, maybe make it occur earlier. But also sometimes we need to consider time to event analysis, even if we're just interested in if because of censoring and truncation processes that we might talk about later. So sometimes maybe you are interested just in a binary outcome, but because you have censoring and time to event and truncation, you can't really get around having to use a time to event analysis. And so when you say censoring and and truncation mean we might have to use the analysis, would you say that that is something that we do because we don't have the information that we would want to have? In other words, the censoring isn't a function of the disease process that we're studying. It's more a function of we cannot observe everybody for all of the time that we want them to. And so we have to come up with other approaches. Exactly. It's a necessity because of flaw in your design in some cases. That's a helpful clarification. So if you had perfect data, perfect in the sense that there was no censoring and no issues related to truncation, could you just use a binary outcome and would you get the same answer? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of, for, for example, if you were to define an outcome to be, I don't know, mortality at a given time point, if that were your interest, so mortality at five years after the treatment or, or something like that, then so if you don't have censoring, you know that at five years, everyone at five years had died or not died. Whereas censoring, what, censoring that setting would be if some people you stop following before five years. So maybe some people you don't know what happened after four years. So they might have died between four and five years, but you don't know. So then you're stuck. You cannot really analyze a binary outcome that you had defined at first. And you need to start considering censoring and this more sophisticated analysis. Yeah, in my way of thinking about this, at least as I view the world, probabilities and risks and binaries are what I want. But as you put, I mean, everybody is going to die eventually. So the idea of are you going to die is not a particularly interesting question. But if you were to break things into, you know, are you going to die within the next two years, three years, four years, five years, that would probably be more useful information to people in some ways, because I think people think in terms of risks rather than rates. But in practical terms, we could just never do that. Because as you say, we could never follow everybody for all time. Exactly. Yes. So you you wouldn't be able to do the binary analysis straightforwardly, but with these sort of time-to-event methods, you can start to analyze that risk 
at the different time point. Okay, so the, there's, I think, a lot of different reasons why we think these methods might be useful. Just a, a terminology question that I, that I always think about. I don't know why this always comes to my mind, but in your view, are time to event analyses and survival analyses the same thing? Yes, for me they are, although obviously the term survival suggests that your event is death but all the methodology of survival analysis is the same methodology of time to event. And there's also another terminology that you might have heard of, analysis of failure times. It's the same methodology as well, but that's the terminology that comes from more like industrial applications where it's about whether a machine fails and, or a process fails. That's the event of interest. So that, that's another terminology. Yeah, I, I always do confuse accelerated failure time models and that kind of stuff. I wasn't sure if they were a separate category. So it's helpful. So they all fall under the umbrella of time to event analyses, I guess, with different details related to them. Yes. Okay. So when you're counting how long it is to an event occurring, the point at which you start is very important. So the book refers to the start of follow-up as something called the origin or, or time zero. So when you're thinking about this, can you define, I guess, what that concept means and what considerations are there when you're defining time zero or any tips you can share with us about it? Yes. So in causal inference, which of course you always need to think about what purpose of your analysis is. So if your aim is to do causal inference, then my go to my tip would be to think about the target trial framework, which is the ideal hypothetical randomized trial that you would have liked to conduct to study your intervention of interest. And that framework really gives you a good device to think very clearly about eligibility strategies, when, when your population becomes eligible, treatment strategies when how do you define that when do you define those and when you start follow-up when you stop follow-up as well in the target trial and then how you emulate that with your data and then in the emulation you start to become aware of all the assumptions that you need to make and the possible difference that are between your data and the target trial with that framework then that really helps to think about then when time zero should be because it should be sort of similar as you would want it to be in the target trial so usually like randomized trial you would want to align when an, an eligible individual initiates treatment strategy, that's when time zero should be defined, basically, which is not always possible with observational data to, to emulate that, but that should be the go-to. So try to align eligibility, treatment initiation, and the time zero. And so you brought up this idea of the target trial, which which you know we've talked about a number of times at this show, and I would certainly agree. I think this is absolutely the way to help you think it through. When I think of the target trial framework, though, one of the things that, not always, but when I tend to see these examples in the literature is the main benefit of the target trial format seems to me most often to be exactly that in helping you align or define person time in a way that makes the most sense. It seems to me often most of the other aspects of the trial, you would have gotten exactly the same even if you'd never gone through the process. But it's often the figuring out when to start person time and how to define that zero time that is the most valuable part of the target trial format. And I wonder if that's your experience as well. Well, no, no, it's actually the contrary, maybe. It, oh, okay. <laughs> I find it just a very useful device overall mm -hmm. to make sure. First, it helps you to separate the definition of the estimate from your analysis, from your this analysis decisions. 
and then I use this to teach quite a bit and we show how each protocol of the target trial when you're trying in the emulation part that's related to very specific analysis decisions so it, for me it's a device to plan analysis all the way through so uh, selecting the the sample the emulating the target population is related to how you select your sample and then and that makes you aware of all the potential for selection bias, how you emulate your treatment strategies is related to how to, you measure your exposure and so on. So I, I find that it's just a good way to systematically go through all your analysis decisions and all the possible biases in a way that is very aligned with what your question is, which is encapsulating how you define that target trial. So it, it's a really good device to teach as well how to really properly do this. So I imagine if you're very well trained, it won't make a difference. But when you're starting, then that's just a really good way to just get all of it. <laughs> all of it in one go. Yeah, no, I think you said it really well. And I, I, w I certainly wasn't trying to say that all of those other pieces aren't important so much as it just always felt like the, the defining the person time was probably the place where we use the target trial to avoid biases the most. But I take your point. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's in, in all of those individual decisions adding up to removing as much bias as possible. In your answer a minute ago about lining up time zero, you mentioned about observational research and observational data. I mean, you said, I think something about how how it's not possible sometimes using observational data to think about the start of that time zero sometimes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Did I get that right firstly? And can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, yeah, I didn't mean that it's not possible. I mean that there's complexities in doing and potential yes. dangers. So one example of a danger is the very famous immortal time bias, which is when you define the exposure based on information after time zero. So as a very quick example, if I'm looking at mortality as an outcome and I define time zero to be birth, and then the exposure is ever winning a Nobel Prize, then ever winning a Nobel Prize is going to come out as being a protective factor for mortality because you really need to reach old age in order to win one. So that's an example of the time zero being set before you observe the information that you need to define the treatment. And statisticians would, would call this more like you're conditioning on the future, which is a no-no in <laughs> time to event analysis. And so I guess there's just many opportunities to go wrong when you're defining that in an observational study because because there's no specific time where you actually recruited people and randomized them to an intervention. I love that example with the Nobel Prize, because I think sometimes immortal time bias is taught often in the framework of pharmacoepidemiology. And, uh, you know, there, there's some great papers describing how it works in pharmacoepi, but I love the example where this immortal time bias problem can pop up in other sorts of analytic questions. It also, it relates not immortal time bias, but this issue of defining time zero is something I have to think about a lot in my obesity related work, because you don't just magically arrive at an adult BMI at some time point. I study older adults often. And so your BMI at age 80 is the cumulative impact of a lot of different things. And so there's no possible way to think about randomizing individuals to be at a certain BMI level at age 80. And so that's another way I think that, that these considerations have to be thought of in the, the observational epi world. Yes. And sometimes 
so in your BMI example or something, if you have measured it longitudinally, then maybe you have a way of going, well, yes. I'm going to take the measure from before. But sometimes that's not entirely possible. So that's where it becomes a bit difficult with observational studies to really, you have to make assumptions, basically, that maybe a BMI that you measured a bit later is a good proxy of what of the BMI that would be a time where you would want to define time zero for other reasons. And then that can introduce some biases if those are very strong assumptions. And so to a certain extent, isn't if we do an observational study where let's say we're doing a prospective cohort study, we enroll people and we break them into groups based on their exposure status, but the exposure has already occurred for most of the people in, in the cohort, some degree of smoking or some exposure, some chemical or whatever it is. Is there not some extent to which there is that conditioning on having survived to have been able to accumulate the exposure that gets factored in there? Or is the fact that they are alive at the time when we enroll them into cohort mean by definition everybody is alive and therefore you don't run into that problem? I guess here you're thinking of an outcome being mortality? Let's say, yeah, mortality. Okay. So I think, yeah, I would go back to target trial and think, okay, what is my target population? And probably when you recruited people into your cohort, you, were, you had some idea of what the target population would be. And therefore, maybe it's adults over a certain age that you've recruited. And then so it means your your results will apply more to that sort of population, which means, yes, you've had to survive until you enroll them. But I guess I would say so for the smokers, let's say smoking has been accumulating over a period of 30 years. And I'm not enrolling, you know, I'm enrolling people when they're in their 60s. Smoking has been accumulating for 30 years. Some people who smoke will die during the time up to 60 years because of the smoking and they are now removed from the population. Whereas people who didn't smoke don't have that same risk of dying, at least from the smoking. I mean, they could die of other things. But now the population that has survived age 60 in the non-smokers seems different in some ways than the population that did smoke. So I just wonder whether using prevalent exposures creates some of that same issue. Yeah, that could create, it's more of a selection bias, I think, mm -hmm. that you're yeah. estimating conditional survival up to 60 but treatment started before, and therefore yep. you have selection bias. I don't think it's an immortal time bias per se. It's it's more just classic selection bias. <laughs> classic, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So Matt's question and the questions I was asking about BMI earlier, obesity, highlight that it's important to consider the origin time. But in time to event analyses, people often talk about the time scale. So can you explain to us what the concept of a time scale is related to time to event analyses? And and what some of the different options are when you're defining a timescale? So the timescale defines how the time elapsed until the event is measured from the origin. So the origin might be time at initiating a treatment, and the timescale could be, for example, age, in which case the time to the event would be the age at the event minus the age at the treatment initiation, for example. And so options could be as I mentioned, age, or it could be time, time since recruitment into study, time since start of treatment or diagnosis. Those are various different possible scales that you might choose. And so I'm always familiar with people using time since the origin, but then I definitely see cases where colleagues of mine will use age as the time scale. Given that age is just a function of age at finish minus age at start, why would you use one over the other? Age is often used at the time scale, in particular for things like 
like mortality, because obviously age and mortality are very strongly associated, because in those settings, if you use time since study, then you must adjust for age at the start. Mm -hmm. And that means you need to include age as a covariate in your model, but you could include it with using a linear assumption, but that might be a bit mm -hmm. too blunt. So you need to start thinking about and modeling how age related to this with splines or things like that. And basically by taking age as the time scale, you avoid having to do any of this modeling. So it's just a convenient way of avoiding modeling for that very important factor. So it allows you to adjust in a much more precise and tight way for age. Okay. I didn't know that. That actually makes a lot of sense. So if you use age as the time scale, you don't need to adjust for age as a covariate in your modeling that you do later on. Exactly. Um, just to get the, again, the basics out of the way, the other big concept in time to event analyses that you mentioned earlier on is related to censoring and truncation. Are those the same? Are they different? How, what's the difference between censoring and truncation? So censoring is related to the process by which you observe events. And importantly, it's not related to the occurrence of the events. So I recently heard a nice definition at a seminar by Jan Beiersman, who, who likened it to a, a light being switched on and off. Imagine you're in a room, the event can happen, and then censoring is just whether you have the light on or off. So, for example, in right censoring, the study investigators observe the event if the light is on, obviously, and, and they don't observe it if it's off. So in right censoring, yeah, the light is on from the start of the follow-up, and then at some point, the light gets switched off, and things will continue to happen as they do in the room. <laughs> and then if you switched off the light before the event occurred, then the event is right censoring but the event could still be happening after that. It's just that you don't observe. So that's censoring, while truncation is more when you have participants enrolled into the study in a delayed way. So for example, you might have been interested in individuals who are older than 60, but perhaps there are some people who enter your study when they're 70 or 75, something like that. So they have entered in a delayed way, and this means there's a whole time between the entry of study participants during which other participants of that same age could have died, but you didn't even enroll them, so you don't even know who they are. So truncation is a bit different. It's a bit more about inclusion into the study, which can be related to survival time. And so what is it about time to event models in particular that deals with these problems, truncation and censoring, really well? So I wouldn't say that they deal with it. <laughs> I would say that they provide a way to get less biased and more precise estimates under more relaxed assumptions. That's what I meant. Yes. <laughs> under more relaxed assumptions relative to analysis that would ignore these issues. So for example, analysis that would exclude participants who are censored, in some cases that might not lead to bias, but often it could lead to bias. It depends on your assumptions about the censoring. And then obviously, because you're including more individuals in this analysis, you're not excluding those who are censored, then you get more precise estimates. But you're using all the information and the data that they, the individuals who are censored have partial information about the distribution of the event. So time to event analysis uses that information and that provides the possibility to have increased precision. And the key to this censoring approach working is that, as you say, the censoring is unrelated to the actual event itself. That's probably gets violated somewhat in most of the analyses we do, but hopefully not to such an extent that it creates a lot of bias. But I guess when you're reading the literature and you see studies that have used these methods, do you find that often you are looking at it saying, I just don't believe that in this case, the censoring would be 
completely independent or do you find more often than not it seems reasonable well yes i don't think that that happens to me often actually that i'm like worried about the independent censoring assumption i'm often worried about many other things before that sure. like is the question clear mm-hmm. right <laughs> what is the type of question did how did they define time zero how did they define the time scale that because i think those are the biggest challenges that, that people get wrong and so the censoring part just i just don't have don't have time to worry about that after all the other worries <laughs> fair enough fair enough and i guess if you if you've gotten that far and there's too many other things to worry about maybe the censoring is the least of your worries at that point that seems quite reasonable sure yeah the model just deals with it it just deals with it okay all right good <laughs> at least with this sort of analysis you have the see that it, it's dealing with it in a sensible way it's already including all the partial information and it's already doing it in at least in analysis that are conditioning on a recovariate there's at least a more relaxed assumption that the censoring and the and the, and the time of two events are independent given those covariates which is a more relaxed assumption than just assuming that they're completely independent and so it sort of likens what what you would like to do often in, with missing data, which is not completely ignore it and throw out all the information and assume that it's completely random. You want to make sure you're incorporating some partial information and that you're not making that strong assumption of it being completely random. And, and these analyses by default are sort of doing that. So you, you can feel slightly, <laughs> slightly less worried about it. Would it be fair to say that these are effectively imputation models, that they are imputing the time to the event for people for whom you don't observe it based on what you know about people for whom you have observed the outcome and have similar covariate patterns? I don't know if I would use the word imputation, but I would definitely define them as methods that deal with incomplete data. Mm-hmm. So I would class them in that category in some sense, okay. incomplete data methods. Yeah, I think part of the problem is too often we just ignore the censoring and use a binary outcome and you know use logistic regression or, or something like that. And so at least you are putting some thought into censoring related processes in these time to event models in a way that you're just doing the best you can with imperfect data, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So now that we've kind of covered the basics and thanks for explaining all those core concepts to us related to time to event, something that I notice in the epi literature, the medical sciences literature, the big journals is that people love Cox proportional hazards regression model. People love the hazard ratio. And firstly, I still, after all this time, still struggle to define a hazard, still struggle to define exactly what a hazard ratio is telling you. And so in my opinion, I know this is kind of a hot take, a controversial topic, but I think that these Cox partial hazards models are overused in Epi. And so I guess the first question is, do you agree or disagree or, or you don't want to put your foot on the ground one way or the other related to that topic? I think I wouldn't say they're I think they are overused in a way that is not potentially the best way they could be used. Okay. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yes. So the reason why my statisticians love the proportional hazards model so much is because it's a very, it's semi-parametric, as is explained in the book, which means it avoids assumptions about the majority of the distribution of the events. And so it's very robust. It's a very good method, statistically robust, that tells you a lot about, without having to make a lot of assumptions about, about this distribution of events. It also, the hazard and all of that, like the, the, proper, the statistical properties 
this means that it, it really lends itself to deal with these censoring issues in a way that is very useful. When I say that it's overused to an excessive degree, it's again going back to what is the usual challenge, I guess, in general, which is going back to the question of what is the purpose of my analysis? And then following from that, what is my estimate of interest? And I think when people just run a Cox regression, just for some confounders, they're assuming that the estimate is that hazard ratio. And in causal inference, at least, that has a lot of issues because, well, the hazard ratios have issues of collapsibility, like the odds ratio, for example. Mm-hmm. But then there's also this other issue around, I don't know if you've heard about this very famous paper by Miguel Hernan and the, the hazards of hazard ratios and the sort of embedded selection bias in hazard ratios. So that there's some issues that arise there by taking the hazard ratio as the causal estimate. And one might argue that there, there are some better estimates that we could use. And it may be that the Cox proportional hazards model, which is a model that is really good statistically, could be used as, as a sort of step to get to the estimate that we want to get to. So it's sort of like g-computation with binary outcomes where the logistic model statistically is a model that's really good for binary outcomes because it, it doesn't go out of the parameter space, but we, we have all these issues with the odds ratio and collapsibility, etc. But we can use logistic regression within g-computation to then estimate the risk ratio or the risk difference on average over the population. So similarly, I think the Cox model can be used within an approach like that or with inverse probability weighting or these sort of things in a way to get at an estimate in, in a two-step sort of approach to get at an estimate that's more interpretable and has less issues than the hazard ratio. Do you think that's something that most people understand? I mean, people who do really sort of advanced statistical methods do, but I suspect that the majority of people don't actually truly realize that any model that you fit that has probabilities at the heart of them, you can get the probabilities back out and then you could do whatever you wanted with them. You can subtract them, divide them. You can model out survival function if you want. Anything that you can get out of these models, you don't have to rely simply on something like an odds ratio that you're getting out of it. But it, it, it seems to me that's that's not something the average probably epi student learns. Yes, it's surprisingly you, the use of regression models, like that's the model, because I, I think it's just, it's so widespread and it's just yeah. so easy to do a regression model. That's what the bulk of people are doing and they just reproduce what other people do. And I'm very interested in my teaching and in my practice to, to help my collaborators and all of that move into an approach like G-computation, for example, which I, it's just one more step <laughs> after the usual regression that you do. So it, it should be an accessible thing that you can do and so we've, we've done a bit of work to get to try to well teach that but also to develop approaches to help implement it in a setting but the statistical world in some senses the methodologists are already over there talking about doubly robust methods and tmle blah, blah, blah. and why would you do g-computation if of course tmle over is much better yeah because tmle mm-hmm. is like a de-biased g-computation it would it's even much better but I'm like, but wait, 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 we haven't brought all of these people along. Exactly. Maybe we need <laughs> to, exactly we it. need to go to the middle step to get them into this before they can actually get to that. So I think it's just challenges of filtering all the bridging between that methodology and the practice and just re-educating, <laughs> educating and re-educating people. It's a big challenge. Do you think as a field, we will ever get to a place where the default analysis isn't either a Cox model or a logistic regression? I really hope so. 
I'm trying, but but I I don't know. I'm not optimistic. It really is such a function of what's easy, what's accessible in yeah. a software package. You know, whatever software package you can probably within five minutes figure out how to run logistic regression as long as you somebody's loaded the data for you. And so it's it's just so simple. So I think there's a glimmer of hope in the sense that as our software continues to improve, maybe these approaches the G-computation and the TMLE and, and, you know, the fancy things will become more accessible through the software program, potentially. I think ChatGPT is another way that someone just recently told me that it'll produce basically any kind of code you'd like it to produce. And so maybe that's one good side of those programs. You know, people have talked about all the terrible things that they're doing, but maybe one potential good point. Yes, but I think it's not just, I mean, I agree that having the computational ease of doing things first step are really important steps just having really easy commands to use that it's sort of homogeneous across software things like that so that everyone can access it however it cannot just be that because for example there's there are tmle packages that are out there but the cautious people thankfully don't venture to use it because they're not familiar with it they don't understand exactly what it's doing that it's different to regression and all of that so i think alongside computational stuff i think just more of training and accessible tutorials and guidelines and and then also exemplars (laughs) like so showing for by example so i have a a lot of experience where we start using like some more different or sophisticated methods in applied work. Me as a statistician and my collaborators are excited, excited, excited. And then we have a hard time with reviewers all the time. Yes. You're, you're teaching your collaborators, but you're also teaching the reviewers. But little by little, I guess it's a long, long, long game, little by little. If, as you get papers out there that are doing things better and explain what they're doing, then people feel more confident of doing it because someone else did it already. Because there's always that thing of that you don't want to do something that's different to what everyone else does. Absolutely. And when the Cox model first came out, I'm sure, you know, people I'm sure were saying, what is this newfangled thing the kids are doing? I'm not going to do that. I don't know how it works. What I, I got to go down to the basement computer and put punch cards into a machine, you know. Uh, give me my really simple model. So uh, anytime there's going to be an advance in the methods, it's going to take time for them to become standard. But I I have some skepticism that as a field, we are going to fully move past the Cox model and the logistic regression as the defaults. Matt, was that back in the pioneer times when you were a student? Well, so, I mean, we didn't have computers back then, so we just had to write <laughs> An abacus. We, An we abacus. used to do it all by hand. Yeah. Well, we consulted the Oracle mostly. <laughs> All right. It's hard to believe we're, we're almost reaching time. I'm, I feel like I'm learning a lot right now. I appreciate these examples. I just have one, I guess, final quick topic. Matt and I recorded an episode on this chapter talking through some of the nuances, and we got very confused, I guess, a little bit in our conversation about the concept of semi-competing risks. So can you help us understand this concept better? It's something that I think both Matt and I were struggling with. Yes, definitely. So firstly, I guess going back to what are competing risks, if you want to talk about that first. So a competing risk is an event that will preclude the occurrence of your event of interest. So unlike censoring. So the obvious <laughs> thing that precludes any event is death, obviously. Or you might be interested in cause-specific mortality. So death by a given cause and then obviously death by other causes are competing events of death by your cause of interest. 
semi-competing risks is a setting where you're interested in an event that's not terminal so maybe not like death by a given cause but some event that happens before like i don't know incidents of dementia or something like that but there is still the risk that there's the occurrence of an event like death that is terminal after which you cannot get the event so the difference there is that you can still die after dementia obviously so your event of interest does not preclude the terminal event but the terminal event does preclude your event of interest and so sometimes this is what is called a truncation by death in many fields and i guess one thing to mention about this is that in my view so obviously the terminal event cannot be viewed as a censoring mechanism because it can be related to your event so the independent censoring assumptions and all of that are probably something that you cannot use but also i think the main difficulty here is defining a sensible estimate in the context of truncation by death i think that's a really really hard question in many fields so in trials i believe they often just use this composite strategy where they analyze as event the combined event of having either your event of interest or death and, and that might be the most sensible strategies in some sense if your treatment is having effect on mortality for example you, you'd like to know but in other contexts it's just it's really tricky because it, it leads you to from a potential outcomes counterfactual view often what you would want is what is my risk of the event had this terminal event not happened so if if i could imagine a world where no one died no one had that terminal event but that's a very ill-defined <laughs> intervention how are you going to prevent people from dying so defining an estimate that's sensible and that gets at your question is very difficult and in the book they talk about for example the survivor average causal effect which is is basically a trying to redefine what the estimate is by considering those who would have survived regardless of the treatment but the problem with that estimate is that you don't know what that population is in the actual real world so who are these people and how can you apply the findings from your study if you don't know who they apply to so that in my view that's not the best solution but there's no easy solution to this problem <laughs> i i find I, we have yet to reach a, a way to deal with this and multi-state models which is some or another of the methods that they mentioned there are a very nice way to think about this from a statistical point of view and thinking about the rates between different states in a model and modeling distributions but still you have to think about what is the meaning of all of these estimates that you're getting and whether they are sensible or what they're telling you. I feel like I want to invite you back to have a whole episode <laughs> on this topic. I have so many questions, in particular, the survivor average causal effect. I obviously, I understand the concept. I understand how it can be estimated in, you know, in software packages, etc. This concept that you're estimating something that applies to or apply you don't even know who it applies to it's like my brain is in the washing machine like I, I just can't wrap my head around it because it's conceptually I understand it but practically useless right yeah that would be the view of many <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good that's a good way to to wrap up this episode on how much more I need to learn about the about We all these do. Methods. We all do. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was really great chatting with you and and learning more about this topic. Thank you. It was great to be here. For those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting every year in June, and it also gives you access to the SER library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We also want to plug our sister podcast from the American Journal of 
epidemiology, casual, and friends. If you like this podcast, we think you'll like that one as well. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast of those of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We really appreciate you listening and hope you look out for our next episode. Bye, everyone. Thank you.